Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 207. Today is September 30th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, today I want to wrap up our four-part series on entrepreneurship. This is kind of the annual Labor Day series where we focus on the earning side of the equation. You know, here in the Wellsteading Podcast, we talk about earning, saving, and investing. It's all part of my 10 wealth building principles. I haven't mentioned this in a while. So for those of you that might be new to the show, you might want to go back and listen to the first 10 episodes of this podcast. That's where I lay out my philosophy, the foundation that I use to build my wealth over these past 30 years. Now, I want to tell you right up front before you listen to those episodes, if you're looking for a get rich quick scheme or some type of supposed secret to trading options or some other kind of BS that you hear, not going to find it there. These are 10 principles that I put together based on my own personal life experience, not something I read in a book or learned at a university. They're simple concepts. Give a listen to them and understand it's about progressively building your net worth. It comes down to focusing on three areas, which are learning how to earn an income, learning how to live well below your means, meaning that you earn more than you spend, and then finally being a prudent investor. So today's episode, we're focusing on that earning part of the equation. I got a lot of questions from people about freelancing, seasonal jobs, job hopping, travel jobs. So at a high level, we're going to talk about those things today. And again, this is going to be from a wealth setting perspective. So it's not going to be specifically about the exact methods that you would use to get a seasonal job or something like that, but it's talking about the concept of why you might or might not want to do that and what freelancing is all about. Before we get to this, though, I do want to mention, for those of you that have asked, that yes, I will be traveling to the great state of Texas the end of October, beginning of November. However, I won't be scheduling any well-studying meetups. You know, we've done things like that in the past on some of my travels. I have a really busy schedule while I'm, I'm down in Texas, and I'm not going to be able to do that th- on this trip. I will mention, though, for those of you that I didn't get a, a chance to meet with privately last time I was down there, or for some of you that have been long-term listeners to the show, if you do want to get together to perhaps talk about investment options or your portfolio, and you want a private meeting with me, get in touch with me either through wealthsteading.com or investablewealth.com. Let me know where you're at and when you're available to meet. If I have a hole in my schedule and it aligns up with your availability, Maybe we can have a chance to get together. I'll be primarily in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but I will be going uh, as far south as down into like the Austin area. So no guarantees there, but I do like to uh, have the opportunity to meet with people whenever I get a chance. So let me know if you'd like to get together. We'll see if we can arrange it. So hey, let's jump right into the topic and let's talk about freelancing. And let me start off by just giving you a little bit of a personal perspective on it. First of all, when I talk about freelancing, I'm not just talking to people that are actual freelancers or people that are working from job to job, but I would also apply this to anybody that is a full-time employee. When I talk about freelancing, I think that in today's modern economy, to one degree or another from a high level, everybody is a freelancer, and that includes people that are full-time employees. Let me give you just an example in my own life. I'm a money manager. I work for myself. I have my own firm. And so whether you want to look at me as an employee of my own firm or a self-employed person or an entrepreneur, whatever it is, the bottom line is I'm a freelancer. Freelancer being I work from job to job. 
Now, my business model is to attain and maintain client portfolios over a long period of time. My goal is to continue to work with the same people year in and year out for, you know, decades into the future. But I have no long-term contracts with my clients. My clients can end the relationship with me at any point. And so the only assurance that I can have to maintain my clients is to give them the best service and to make them the most amount of money, you know, in accordance with their goals as I can. And even then, it doesn't guarantee that I'm going to retain them as clients because, you know, people die. Obviously, their money would go to their heirs and they may not choose to engage me as their uh, money manager. Or clients can get divorced and assets would be, you know, separated and so some of that may come out. Or they may have a life change where they uh, want to go into a very conservative retirement program and go into something like an annuity, which I don't deal with. And so there's all kinds of reasons why even if I provide them with a quality service, they may choose to disengage themselves from my firm because ultimately I'm a freelancer. My clients can choose to stop working with me at any point, just as I can choose to stop working with any particular client at any given time. Now, ultimately, that's the way all of our lives work. Even if you're an employee at a big Fortune 500 company, you may think that you have a great amount of security in your job or with um, the particular customers that your Fortune 500 company serves because of the scope and the size and the history of your company. But the bottom line is, is that at any point we can lose key clients or customers and top line sales and bottom line revenue can be affected. And so in my case, that would be money out of my own pocket. In your case as an employee, that means that you could get laid off or fired for no reason of your own. You could be doing a a fantastic job. You could be performing extremely well. But if your employer loses a key contract or loses a key customer, your services may no longer be needed, no matter how good you are. And so ultimately, we're all freelancers. So I think it's important for those of you that are full-time employees to still think of yourself as a temporary worker Because particularly in today's economy, you don't have the security that you may think you had in the past. The other thing that I want to point out from my own personal experience is that for the 20 years that I was in a corporate environment, I switched jobs probably something like, I think I held seven different jobs, seven different companies over a 20-year period. So I, in a sense, was a freelance employee. I switched companies every, say, two to five years on average. I gained a great deal of experience in a wide variety of manufacturing processes, so it was um, mentally stimulating, and because I was a good sales and marketing guy, I was able to earn a very nice income. And while perhaps if I had gotten maybe with the right company and stayed with them for 20 years, I would have really enjoyed that, but that just wasn't in the cards for me. It never worked out for me. And so, you know, every two to five years, I would be offered a better opportunity at a different company, and I would take that opportunity to leave, to make a higher commission, to get better benefits, to receive a, you know, overall higher compensation package. And I found it easier to increase my total compensation by moving to different employees than by staying with the same company all those years. Now, early on in my career, when I uh, started that kind of a process, that was going against the grain of the uh, established society because there were still a lot of employee-sponsored benefit programs, uh, employee-sponsored pensions, to where it was advantageous to stay for it with a company for you know at least six or seven years to get vested in their pension program or to you know other kind of golden uh, golden handcuffs that they would try and tie you down down with to keep you with an individual company. 
Well, you know, about midway through my career, I'd say in about, oh, the mid-2000s, most Fortune 500 companies at that point had really phased out of any type of a defined pension program. Many of them, if not most of them, switched to an employer match on something like a 401k program, which, you know, a lot of people are unhappy with. But actually, from a freelance standpoint, I think that's really to your advantage. That allows you to not get locked in with golden handcuffs at at any one company. And so whether you work for your employer for, you know, six months or five years, you're fully invested from day one. You can take that money in the form of a, a 401k and either transfer it to another 401k at a, at a different employer or, or roll that into your own IRA or Roth. And you can allow that money to build and grow as you switch employers and don't have to worry about missing opportunities on a defined uh, pension benefit plan. I think that's a great advantage because as I say, there is not the security in corporate America like people perceived maybe 30 years ago. You just saw recently where Ford Motor Company is moving the production of all their small cars down to Mexico. That's not something that's unique to Ford Motor Company. If you're in the manufacturing sector, you know for probably 40 years or more, jobs have been moving offshore, manufacturing jobs. You know, I actually think that with automation and the low energy costs that we have in the United States, a lot of those jobs are going to be coming back, but they're not going to be coming back in the form uh, that politicians are promising. You know, people like Donald Trump are talking about bringing jobs back to America, bringing manufacturing jobs back. Yeah, they're going to come back, but they're going to come back in the form of automation. Those jobs as manufacturing assembly line type jobs. They're going to be done completely by automation, not by humans. And so the jobs that will come back will be based on people with high tech skills that can maintain those robots, not people that are actually going to be doing the manual labor. It's not just about manufacturing, it's jobs across the board. We're at a point, a transition point in our society where things are changing on a more rapid scale than they've ever changed in human history at any time before. You go back just a decade ago and a company like BlackBerry was the leader in corporate enterprise type communications for you know selling mobile phones to corporations Every executive was walking around with a BlackBerry. Most consumer-level cell phones, mobile phones, were made by Nokia. But fast forward, you know, 10 years, a decade later, for the most part, BlackBerry and Nokia are irrelevant. They lost out on the technology curve. That's just one example. You can think of literally hundreds of thousands of examples like that throughout our economy. I've talked about Sears and Roebuck a number of times through the years on this podcast. You know, in my grandfather's day, which really wasn't that long ago, a company like Sears was an American institution. If you think about it, the whole concept of Amazon was pioneered by the Sears and Roebuck catalog. You know, go back to the early part of the last century where people that didn't live in large cities, they got most of their consumer goods by ordering it through a Sears and Roebuck's catalog. It's really not a whole lot different than we do with Amazon today. The difference is, though, is that over the years, Sears did not keep up with retailing. They didn't keep up with technology. They didn't have the corporate vision to take them into the economy of 2016, where Amazon is dominant in online retailing. Sears was also unable to keep up with the regular brick-and-mortar retailing, like uh, you know, companies over the last 30 years have done, from Walmart to, to Target and Kohl's and Macy's. Places like Home Depot, Sears lost out on all fronts. They lost out on the catalog sales. They lost out on the retail brick-and-mortar sales. 
If you were an employee of Sears, it didn't matter how good you were or what position you were in, whether you were an executive or whether you were someone that worked on the low end of retail, your career at Sears went away because Sears went away because Sears lost its customer base. That's happening on a faster, more rapid scale than ever before to all aspects of industry, from high technology to medical applications to the service sector. And so don't think that you're secure as an employee. Think of yourself as a freelancer. Whenever the gig is up at the place you're at now, you need to be prepared to go somewhere else. Now, as far as going somewhere else, I've received a lot of questions from people about, you know, seasonal work or working travel jobs or whether it's wise to, you know, job hop within their career or between lateral careers. And I can't address everybody's specific situation because it's different. I mean, there are people that are interested in on a seasonal basis, maybe having something like their own greenhouse where they're having a business where they start potted plants to people that are retired and they're interested in in travel jobs where they maybe work for camp hosts at an RV park, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of questions that are really specific to your your personal situation. And, And I will mention here, as far as travel jobs and seasonal work, I see a lot of that as a real dichotomy. It's it's either people under 30 or it's people over 60. You know, the people that are 30 to 60, they seem to be caught up in the more traditional employment. You know, obviously that, that is the peak earning years. That's the years when they're raising their families. And so they're not as mobile as someone that doesn't have kids yet or as uh, for an older person that's an empty nester. So again, any advice I would give to you is going to be really specific to where you're at in your specific life cycle. If you're 27 years old and don't have any kids, well, hey, you could maybe be traveling all around the world gaining amazing experience as a freelance worker. On the other side of that, you know, you could be a retired physician that's 65. You could have, you know, made money selling your old practice or retiring from the hospital or whatever you worked at. And now you're traveling around the world doing freelance or seasonal work in some type of uh, medical related field. You know, you may be working as a doctor or you may be working as a consultant. You could be working directly for a hospital. You could be working at a private practice. Uh, You could be working for an insurance company. You could be doing that remotely where, hey, you're in Panama, but you're working remotely for an insurance company in the States, you know, reviewing case files, acting as some type of a consultant. Or you could actually be on the ground in Panama working uh, on a short-term contract as a physician at a local clinic or something. It all depends on your talents and abilities and the products and services that you can bring to the market. And I think that you should explore those possibilities, particularly if you're someone that is under 30 or over 60. Now, I know some of you may be saying, uh, particularly those in the medical field or those in some type of uh, uh, professional capacity that that have a specific license or specific credentials. And that could be anybody from an electrician to a pharmacist. You can say, well, hey, I can't go to Panama and become an electrician or get a short-term gig as a pediatrician because I'm not licensed in Panama. Well, that may be true, but don't rule things out because remember, in, in most economies, not all, but in most situations, you're able to work under the license of your employer or under you know your mentor or something. So you potentially could go to Panama And I'm just using that as an example. I have no idea how restrictive they are on business license and things, but I know there are a lot of expatriate Americans down there because I talked to them. Cost of living is very nice. Medical costs are inexpensive. Rent, things like that. Uh, You know, cottages along the beach. It's a really good lifestyle. So a lot of expatriates are down there. 
And let's say that you're an electrician and you'd like to go there. Well, just because you're not licensed as an electrician in Panama doesn't mean that you couldn't get a short-term work assignment with a contractor or a journeyman or somebody like that, a corporation that is licensed. And then you perform your work as you normally would, and they verify under their license that it was done properly. Same thing if you're you know, some type of a physician. You wouldn't be opening your own clinic. You're going to be working under the guise of whoever has the license. Now, that also means that you're not going to get compensated or paid as much as you would if you were the main person with the license. But remember, you're doing this on a freelance basis. And perhaps the reason you're going to Panama is for the lifestyle. You want to get down there. You want to enjoy the nice weather. You want to live on the beach uh, in an uh, inexpensive lifestyle. Maybe you want to get out of paying some uh, U.S. American taxes. I mean, there could be a whole lot of reasons why you would want to go there on a short-term basis. And so you would be willing to work for maybe less compensation than you normally would. And, and this is a key point, not only with our employment, but with our overall wealth-building skills. When I talk to you about building wealth, it's, it's not about getting rich quick overnight. It's not about what kind of interest rate you can make or return you can get in the stock market today. It's about how your net worth can increase over time. That's why I tell people that have a small amount of money not to worry about being an investor and focusing on their investment side of the equation. They need to focus on their earnings capacity because at the end of the day, their net worth is going to increase more by what they can contribute with their savings versus what kind of return they can get on their portfolio. Now, the opposite is true as your, as your portfolio grows. And the uh, objective is at some point you have a portfolio that's large enough to generate a return for you that you don't have to work if you choose not to. That's when your money's working for you and you're not working for your money. That's the same concept you have to take with being a freelance worker, whether it's just a, a summer seasonal job or whether it's a, a getaway, you know, vacation, travel, lifestyle type experience. Are you increasing your overall, and I don't call it net worth, but are you increasing your overall net lifestyle? The bottom line on freelancing is it's a balance, a very critical balance between compensation that you earn and freedom of lifestyle that you attain. And it's different for everyone. It depends on how much money you, you know, physical dollars you need to live off of, what your cost of living is. And it's also based on how much you value your freedom. Do you want to work 12 hours a day to pay for your big house or your big fancy car? Or would you rather only work three hours a day but not have such a fancy house? Now, I know all of you want to have the big fancy house, the big fancy car, and not work. But that, that, um, you know, that's not reality. So it's a trade-off. Only you can decide that. The important part is keeping your eye on increasing your overall net lifestyle. Are you getting compensated appropriately to live the way that you want to? I think that's a good way to think about with your overall employment, but it's especially the way you want to think when you're a freelancer, when you're a seasonal worker, uh, when you're someone that uh, has a, an overseas traveling job or even a, a job traveling throughout the United States. I meet a number of nurses um, that have traveling jobs. You know, hospitals all around the country um, have, have nurses that, that go out on maternity leave or take vacations or early retirement or, or whatever, and there's always a need for nurses on a short-term basis. And so there are men and women that are traveling nurses that work throughout the year on, you know, basically a full-time basis, but they're doing it as individual freelancers 
all around the country. So they may go to you know Minneapolis for six weeks, and then they go down to Phoenix, Arizona for a month, and then they go over to Buffalo, New York. For established sectors of the economy like that, where that's common, you know, you can go on the on the internet and find employment services and headhunters and things like that that um, that focus and specialize on, on those type of sectors. For the for the most of us, though, if you want to find seasonal work or a travel job type work, you got to go out and find it on your own. But with the internet, it's so much easier than it ever was before, and it's really no different than getting a full time job. If you're someone that's highly credentialed and you have a, a lot of work experience, you're valued in your industry, that you can use your personal networking or you can find headhunters to help you get those type positions. But if you don't have that, if you're just starting out, you can still do it. You just have to work a little harder. And what you want to do is you want to contact the hiring manager. It doesn't matter if you're that, you know, the electrician or the physician you're an accountant, whatever it is, you want to pick you know, the location where you want to work, you want to look at what jobs or employers are in that area, and then you want to go directly to that hiring manager. If you're a salesman, you want to go to the sales manager. If you're an accountant, you want to go to whatever, the vice president of finance or whatever, go directly to that hiring manager, contact them through a letter, through the you know, internet email, call them up on the phone, use all three of those methods of communication, Target them, tell them what your credentials are, why you want to work there, why you want to have a uh, you know, short-term employment, what you can do to hit the ground running and make their life easier, make their company more profitable, take uh, some of the workload off of them. You'll be surprised how easy it is to get positions when you approach it from that standpoint, but you also have to be diligent and you have to take a shotgun approach. You know, you can't pick one place you want to go to. You can't say, I want to go to, you know, Bogota, Colombia for six months and pick two employers and send them a letter. Now you can't do that. You got to pick, you know, maybe 12 different locations that you might want to go to and 40 or 50 employers at each of those locations and then be flexible and willing to take whatever opportunity comes up because it is totally market-based. Your services may not be needed where you specifically want to go. And so you have to take that shotgun approach. And then if you get back five or 10 offers, you pick the one that's most appropriate for you. Again, based on that concept of the balance between the compensation offered you and the freedom of lifestyle that you want to live. And this is not only true of travel jobs, but even if it's just seasonal work here in the United States, maybe you want to have that greenhouse where you plant, um, you know, potted nut trees. You start them uh, in the uh, latter part of the winter in your greenhouse or your hothouse or whatever, and you sell them throughout the spring. You never leave your house, but it's seasonal work. Maybe you want to do seasonal work at a resort area. Again, this is, works out well if you're under 30 or over 60. Maybe you want to go to Park City, Utah for ski season. Perhaps you can be that physician that works at a, a temporary clinic or you work at a, at a hotel to be their in-house physician in case someone sprains something or gets a broken arm. Maybe you just work the ski lift or you work ski patrol or, uh, you know, maybe it's even a, a lower skilled job. Maybe you take a job in housekeeping. You're doing it, in that case, not so much probably to make the money, but because you want to spend three or four months at an awesome ski resort skiing in your spare time. Or maybe you live up in uh, Minneapolis and you want to get down to Arizona for for the winters. You want to have a, a nice climate during the winter, so you go down to Scottsdale or someplace, you do the same thing. You get some kind of a temporary job down there, not so much to make a lot of money, but to experience the warm weather in the winter. It offsets the lifestyle that you want to live. 
Now, if you have three kids and you're 37 years old, that may not be easy for you to do. But, you know, if you're 22 or if you're 67, you probably have the freedom to make those kind of choices. Just balance it. What's it going to cost me? What can I earn? Is it going to increase my freedom and the lifestyle that I want to live? Even if it's only over a, you know, a three-week period, you'll find yourself much happier in those type of freelance jobs or those types of travel situations because you're not only short-term living the lifestyle that you want to have, but you're also moving from location to location and position to position so you're not getting bored. You know, that's something that I experienced in the 20 years I was in the corporate world by switching jobs every you know two to five years. I was always doing something different. I was always in a different location. I was with a different product or service. I was in a different industry. It was always very interesting to me. So again, it, it gave me the compensation I wanted, but it also gave me the type of lifestyle or the mental stimulation that I wanted. Now, again, while I can't tell you specifically what's right for you or whether you should look to freelance in a particular area or not, I will tell you this. I'm seeing more and more people that are doing things that are travel-related, and this is both domestically or outside the U.S., um, that's geared to the high season. Uh, So maybe like a property management job where you travel down to Orlando or Scottsdale, Arizona, or up north during the ski season to a location where you're, you know, you're a property manager over some privately owned condominiums, uh, apartments, things like that. Uh, people are booking them through HomeAway or Airbnb, and the owner doesn't live there. The owner is off-site, and so you're going in during the high season to help manage those properties and make sure that there's a good uh, customer experience for the people that are renting out those locations. And they don't necessarily have to be property specific. They could be things like services op- offered to those uh, to those properties. You know, cleaning the swimming pool, making sure the irrigation systems work uh, on golf courses, uh, just a variety of jobs that are associated with tourists on the high season. That's one end of it. And I'll tell you the other side that I'm seeing uh, really looks like a building trend on and, and people getting a, a short-term employment on them. And it's th- that same seasonal work, but it's it's not in the it's not during the high season. It's the exact opposite of that. So it's it's going to Phoenix, Arizona in August when it's 130 degrees out there. Now, from a lifestyle perspective, you may not want to do that, but there do seem to be that there's a lot of um, you know inverse seasonal jobs available, particularly on the property management side of things, where they need someone to go in and take care of the properties that are not occupied, right? Where there's a high rate of vacancies, and so the advantage to a position like that is it, it's not this, it's not as difficult of a job because. Uh, it's not as labor intensive. If you're a property manager overseeing 50 condos that are rented out on Airbnb, then you got a lot of work to do. On the other hand, if you're a property manager of, say, 300 properties during the low season when nobody's there, really what you're doing is you're basically just on call sort of as a, as a security person making sure that the property isn't vandalized or robbed or broken into, you know, again, making sure the irrigation system is working to to keep the grass growing for when the tourists do come down or, um, you know, draining the pool and painting it. I mean, it's all the same kind of jobs. It's just working in the off season can tend to be at a lower pace. And so if you're willing to put up with some severe heat in the south during the summer or, some really cold weather in the winter up north, working that off-season seasonal job may be what you're looking for. 
the cost of living also tends to be much more advantageous during those seasons. And so, you know, even if you're not making any more money on a compensation basis, your rent and your living expenses would be much less in the off season. So, hey, these are all some things to think about. I'm a big promoter of being a freelancer, as you can tell. I think if you're a full-time employee, you need to think of yourself as a freelancer. If you're someone that's under 30, over 60, then you should definitely be looking at these seasonal or freelance type jobs, uh, whether it be to enhance your lifestyle, to go on a vacation somewhere where um, you maybe otherwise wouldn't, or to defer the cost of that vacation, or in fact, to turn that hobby into some type of a business where, again, it enhances your lifestyle, it creates some income stream, and perhaps there might even be some tax advantages to it. Now, don't have time to get into all that on this episode, but you can think about that. If you're someone that does want to have that greenhouse because you're a gardener and you like doing that kind of work, then maybe, you know, even if you don't make a lot of money uh, doing it from a compensation standpoint, it may make sense to seasonally in the spring be growing those uh, tomatoes or other type of potted plant that you can sell on a limited basis just to make enough income to classify your hobby as a business or to benefit from any legitimate business expenses or depreciation you know that you couldn't have taken if it was simply a hobby. All things to think about. That's why I love the free market. I find it so interesting in different ways that people earn their income and build their net worth. I hope that was helpful. Thanks for joining me today. On our next episode, we're going to come back and do a market review. We haven't done one of those in a while. A lot of you are asking because I really don't think anything has changed. We're still in a situation where we have overall global slowdown. If you've been paying attention to the numbers lately, you've seen that global GDP has been revised down to really just about 2%. U.S. GDP, which was supposed to be 25 2.8% growth, really revised down now to probably under 2% for 2016. We have some firming up in oil prices, which is helping the petrodollar situation, but things are still really soft in China. All these things are working together to create the uh, what I feel is a, is a very risky, uncertain market when we find ourselves at all-time market highs because of all the misappropriation and easy money policies from central banks throughout the world. So I'm still remaining cautious. I'm about 80% in cash. I do think that as we put aside some of these political uncertainties, and it's not just about the November uh, U.S. election, but we've got a lot of populist-type votes coming up in Europe that are going to continue to have an impact on global trade. So we have to watch all that. But I do see some opportunities firming up because I think bottom line as we go into 2017, uh, as far as the United States goes, no matter who's president, It's apparent that central bank, low interest rate, monetary policy is not working. For the better part of a year, we're hearing the academics and government officials come out, talk about more fiscal stimulus spending. So that means, you know, the shovel-ready jobs, infrastructure spending. I think that's going to hit in 2017, no matter who's in political power in the U.S., The real question and the uncertainty revolves around the point of, will we have a market correction that's needed to spur us in that direction, or are we going to maintain status quo until that happens? Well, come back to the next episode. You'll hear me talk about that continuing theme of where we're at with energy prices and things going on in China, what I think that relates to in terms of your portfolio selection. So until then, as always, thank you for joining me. This is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.